Good morning. Now, we've been working through the book of Hebrews for the last few weeks, and we had a little bit of a break for Christmas. But if I had to sum up the book of Hebrews in three words, it's like this. Jesus is better. In chapters 1 and 2, the writer compares Jesus to the angels, and he quotes one of the Psalms, and he says, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Jesus is better. In chapters 3 and 4, the writer compares Jesus to Moses and Joshua. Jesus is better. In in chapters 5, 6 and 7, he compares Jesus to the high priest of the temple from Aaron's line. But because Jesus is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, a high priest who has been tempted as we are but without sin, Jesus is better. In chapter 8, the writer talks about the old covenant and the new covenant established by Jesus. And guess what? Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And in chapter 9, we're reminded that the new covenant wasn't sealed in an earthly tabernacle, but in the actual holy place in heaven by the blood of Jesus. Jesus is better. But there's a little bit of a problem with this. Naturally, we have no problem at all accepting that the new covenant's better than the old covenant, that Jesus is better. Because we're Gentiles, we have no ownership of the old covenant. We have no identity in the old covenant. But here's a question for you. Who was the letter to the Hebrews written for? It's it's not a trick question. The letter to the Hebrews. Thank you. It's what it says on the tin. It was a letter to the Hebrews. (laughs) And their relationship to the Old Testament was very different to ours. Now, let's take a sideways step for a moment and think about what it means to be British. And I'm sorry if you're not British. Yeah, you'll have to bear with me. But there are certain things that might remind you of Britain. Um, Maybe the White Cliffs of Dover or Tower Bridge in London. Or maybe it's a certain type of food like fish and chips or a Sunday roast. But what most defines any country is its people. I I remember a TV program a couple of years ago where different celebrities each made an episode about a particular famous influential British person. And they talked about why they thought theirs was the most important British person in history. And there was Winston Churchill, Isambard Kingdom Brunel... William Shakespeare, Oliver Cromwell, various people like that. And everyone accepted that the other people were important, but each argued passionately that their character was the essence of what it meant to be British. And more than any place or any object or type of food, these people, these characters, are what gives British people their identity. And that's our potential problem with the letter to the Hebrews, Because for the Jews in the first century, and remember that's who the author was writing to, it was no different. For us, the Old Testament has great stories, full of truth, lessons for how to live our lives. And it's important for us, but for them, it was even more. It wasn't just their religion, it was their very identity, tied up in the people and the characters and the stories of the Old Testament. Now, it's very easy for us to just dismiss the Old Covenant and all the stories that went with it, 
to say, Jesus is better, forget about all that stuff. But for the Jews of the first century, it would have felt like they were being asked to throw away their cultural heritage and who they were. Jesus might be better, but hopefully you can see they might feel it's not for them. They, they just don't want to lose their identity. And this is where the letter to the Hebrews goes next, and what we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks. So how is the Old Testament relevant to the New Testament? How are these heroes of the Old Testament relevant to Jesus, the new and better way? Can Jews accept that Jesus is better without throwing away their identity? So we'll be looking at the Old Testament people and highlighting exactly why they're still vitally important for New Testament people like us. And here's the thing that this chapter talks about, the thing that connects, or one of the things that connects the Old and New Covenants, faith. But what is faith? Faith is something we talk about a lot, but do we actually know what we're talking about when we talk about faith? So we'll read today's passage, which is Hebrews 11, verses 1 to 7. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the words, worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith... Though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so, so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. So this whole chapter is a great chapter in the Bible because it actually nails what faith is all about. It starts out by defining the word faith and goes on to give examples of faith from the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and demonstrates how the stories and characters of the Old Testament are a model of New Testament faith and how to live by faith. So what is faith? Is it something to do with belief? Something to do with hope? A hope, faith and belief, just different words for the same thing? Well, belief must come into it somewhere, but the Bible tells us that even demons believe, so faith must be more than just belief. And what about hope? Well, hope's important, we all have hopes, but hope is a thing about what you want for the future. I hope I get a new guitar for my birthday. (laughs) I hope I get a pay rise later this year. 
I hope Grimsby Town win promotion back to the Football League this year. <laughs> hope is about the future. But faith is a now thing, something that requires a response now. I trust the sun is going to rise tomorrow, so I'm going to set my alarm clock now so that I get up for work in the morning. I trust Morrison's will pay me at the end of the month, so I go to work now. I trust that my wife loves me, so I go home from work at the end of the day now. Faith is about what we do now as a result of the hopes of our hopes for the future. But the other difference is this. Hope is a head thing. Faith is a heart thing. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes about the helmet of the hope of salvation, but the breastplate of faith and love. Hope's a head thing. Faith is a heart thing. And unlike hope or belief, faith has elements of endurance, loyalty, trust, and insight into spiritual realities, not just the physical realities that we see around us. But for me, the main thing that separates faith from plain belief or hope is that faith is an action word. It's a doing word. If you have faith, you do something as a result of that faith. If you have faith, you change the way you are. If you have faith, you change the direction of your life. You can't have faith and remain the same. If you have faith, you're obedient. Faith has a cost. And when the book of James tells us that faith without works isn't dead, he isn't telling us that works are more important than faith or that we earn salvation by our works. He's telling us that real faith produces works. Works are the outcome of our faith. And this is all summarized in verse 1 of the passage today. Now faith is the assurance, or you could say substance, firmness, steadiness, the very being, trust, of things hoped for, the conviction or evidence of things not seen, for by it the men of old gained approval. And when the verse refers to things not seen, it means the word of God, the divine promises of God. So let's move on and take a look at some of those men of old who gained approval for their faith. You might notice they're listed in chronological order, and we're starting with Abel. Now, our verse tells us, By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. So, let's look at the original story in uh, Genesis chapter 4. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. And again she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions, And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, 
will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. And Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. When I first became a Christian, I found the Cain and Abel story a bit confusing. Why was Cain's sacrifice unacceptable? Does the Lord love butchers more than greengrocers? Does he find an abattoir more holy than a greenhouse? Should all you vegetarians be worried? Where does the Lord stand on fish and eggs? If we read the the narrative in Genesis, it seems quite clear that Cain should have known what sort of sacrifice he should have brought for the Lord. The text doesn't explain how he should have known. He was probably shown by his father Adam, but it seems quite clear that he should have known. Not only that, but when God rejected his sacrifice, he did give him a chance to repent, and of course he didn't. Cain did make a sacrifice to the Lord, but only Abel's sacrifice was acceptable because his sacrifice was made with faith, and his faith was in the form of obedience. His was the type of sacrifice that God required. And for us, we can do all the right things. We can attend church every week. We can give our finances to support the work of the church. We can read our Bibles every day, and we can play our part in serving within the church, helping to make church happen. But if we do all this without faith... If we just make those sacrifices out of a sense of duty and with a bitter heart, rather than out of faith, they'll be worthless. Just as Cain's sacrifice was worthless. But what was Abel's reward for his faith? All we read is that he got his head bashed in by his brother. That doesn't seem like much of a reward. Well, the answer to this is a little bit obscure. But in Jewish literature, Abel was considered to be the first innocent victim of the power of evil, which is, of course, represented by Cain. He was considered the first martyred saint, and they gave him the title of Abel the Just. In the Book of Enoch, the soul of Abel is the chief of the martyr souls in Sheol, crying to God for vengeance until the seed of Cain shall be destroyed from the earth. He's also described as the judge of souls. Now, the book of Enoch is one of the Apocrypha, so we can't rely upon it as scripture, even though it's referred to elsewhere in the New Testament. But we can say that Abel was highly regarded by first century Jews, the people that the book of Hebrews was written for. And actually, it's probably no dafter than the idea of St. Peter stood at the gates of heaven, deciding whether people can come in or not. But there's another important thing that this passage highlights. Faith and obedience don't necessarily mean that life is going to be easy. Christianity isn't a recipe for an easy life. There's a big problem in the wider church just now with something called the prosperity gospel. And the essence of the prosperity gospel is this. God wants Christians to be rich. And to achieve this, Christians have to, be, have, to have faith and give money to the church. In return, God will bless them financially. Now... This version of Christianity is based on a few isolated verses taken out of context, and it's riddled with holes, so be wary of anyone preaching this type of gospel. Yes, we should have faith. Yes, we should give freely to support the work of the church. And yes, we should give our time to support the church, 
But we should do these things because they're the right thing to do. Not as part of some deal that God is going to prosper us if we're generous. God has already been generous with us. He suffered and died for us. And let's use that as the basis for our faith and generosity. Jesus died for us. Jesus is better. Our next hero of faith is Enoch. Now, he's an interesting character because the Bible actually tells us very very little about Enoch, except that he walks with God. And in fact, if we look at him in the book of Genesis, it doesn't tell us much more other than that he was Noah's grandfather. Enoch walked with God and God took him up. And this is interpreted as meaning he didn't die. But what does that mean, to walk with God? And the passage says, By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So, walking with God means pleasing God by believing in him and seeking him. Now, I hope most of us here believe in God. You're probably in the wrong place if you don't. But how many of us seek him earnestly? It's easy to come to church on a Sunday morning, maybe go to home group on a weekday night, and then not think about the Lord the rest of the time. We must seek him constantly. Last week we sung a song based on Psalm 42. And the first line is, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O Lord. We, we should aim to feel the same. When you wake up in the morning, what's the thing, first thing you think of? When you're wrestling with a problem at work, where do you turn to for the answer? When things are going well, who do you give thanks to? Is giving thanks the first thing you do or is it just an afterthought? Let's be like Enoch and seek God and walk with God all the time. Jesus is better. Our final hero of faith today is Noah. God gave Noah a message of judgment for the world. And Genesis tells us that Noah also walks with God. Not only that, but he's also the first person in the Bible described as righteous. That is acceptable to God. When we, re- when we remember Noah, we tend to think of a cute story about a boat and the flood and all those animals. But it isn't a children's story, really. The earth was filled with violence and God is about to obliterate humanity. It's horrific stuff. But God found Noah righteous, blameless among his generation. So he told Noah to build a boat and gave him details of how to do it. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, building a boat in the middle of dry land takes a lot of faith. Even today, with all the transport technology we have, we still tend to build boats near water. And if I decided I wanted to build a ship, I'd do it somewhere near the sea. And I'd probably start with something a bit smaller, maybe a rowing boat or a canoe. Not a 450 foot long monster. (laughs) Not only that, But it looks like Noah gets on with the job straight away. Now, I tend to be a deadline-orientated person. I started writing this about 8 o'clock this morning, and 
I'm, I'm hoping I'll have finished writing it by uh, about 5 to 12. <laughs> if it was me, I'd be tempted to wait until there were a few clouds in the sky or maybe a few drops of rain before I started work on such a strange word of God like that. But that, as the passage said, faith comes before understanding. Noah started building the boat straight away. And if you hear from God, whether it's a word of prophecy or through scripture, take a step of faith first. Don't wait for it to make sense. It doesn't work that way with spiritual things. The word of God creates faith and faith leads to understanding. Take that small step of faith, just a small step. You don't even need a huge amount of faith. Jesus said that faith the size of a mustard seed could move a mountain. Martin Luther King said this, take the first step in faith. You don't have to see the whole staircase, just take the first step. Take that first step. Hear the word of God, step out in faith, and understanding will come. But here's the other thing about Noah. It was about a hundred years before the flood came. A hundred years. But the Lord always does what he says. Maybe you've had a word or prophecy over your life. And maybe that word hasn't come to pass yet and you've become discouraged. Don't. Noah waited a hundred years for God's word to be fulfilled, but it was fulfilled. Do be discerning about prophecy. Share it with one of the church leaders if you need to. And always confirm it against scripture. But God's word doesn't come back empty. Keep faith and take that first step in faith. Jewish tradition holds that Noah was also a preacher, and one of Peter's letters says the same. And Noah's message through his preaching and the building of the ark was a message of condemnation for the world. <clears throat> Noah alone was blameless in his generation. And we're also in a generation that's spiraling out of control. The general thinking in the world is that anything goes as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. It doesn't matter how you pollute your body. It doesn't matter who or what you sleep with. It doesn't matter what you worship, as long as you're a good person. A good person, whatever that means. And we live in an inward-looking me generation. But just as Noah's faith in building the ark was a message of judgment for the world, so our righteousness can also be a message of judgment for the world. Righteous behaviour always condemns ungodliness. But we have more than a message of judgment. We have, we have a message of hope. Noah had a bleak message. Him and his family were going to be saved. Everyone else had had it. And when I think of Noah preaching and building his ark, I can't help thinking of those guys you see on TV or <clears throat> in Hull City Centre with a sign or sandwich board that says, Repent, the end of the world is nigh. A scary message of judgment. Now, I, I have mixed feelings about those guys because they're right. And they're doing something rather than nothing. But I'd rather attract people to Jesus rather than scaring them to Jesus. The word gospel means good news. And when we put our faith into action, we have a different kind of message. Not one of condemnation, but one of hope and salvation. Now, another question. Without looking, who knows the verse for John 3.16? Put your hand up. Excellent. So, Natalie, come on, tell us. Keep your hands up. 
Okay, if you had your hand up, keep your hand up. Now, keep your hand up if you know the verse for John 3.17. Go on, Richard. God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Our message for the world is one of hope and salvation, and we have to proclaim it with all we are, everything we say, and everything we do. So, I want to pull all this together now and try to sum it up. And the first thing is this, Jesus is better. Better than the angels, better than Moses. Better than Joshua, better than the priesthood, better than the old sacrifices, better than the old covenant. Jesus is better. And Jesus and only Jesus must be the very core of our faith. Faith comes from the word of God. And that faith must result in a change in our lives. It's not just about saying a special sinner's prayer and then carrying on as you did before. It's not just a vague hope that something nice will happen after you've died. Faith is an action word. Faith produces a change in heart, which in turn produces a change in attitude and behaviour. Abel showed faith through his obedience. If we believe in God but don't repent and show obedience to God, we don't have faith. And without faith it's impossible to believe God. Sorry, impossible to please God. Enoch spent his life seeking God and walking with God and was rewarded with eternal life. Would anyone like that? God rewards those who seek him. And finally, Noah showed his faith by his righteousness. Noah alone was blameless in his generation, and he condemned the world by his righteousness. Praise God that we're saved by the righteousness of Jesus, but let's not keep that to ourselves. Noah was a preacher of judgment, but with the same faith, we can be preachers of good news, bringing hope and salvation to our fallen generation through our words and actions. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that Jesus is better. But thank you for all those examples of faith that came before Jesus to give us examples of how to live a life of faith. Help us to be obedient like Abel and bring our sacrifices of time, service and resources with faith. Help us to seek you constantly and walk with you through life as Enoch did. And as you saved Noah because of his faithfulness, thank you that you've saved us for the righteousness that comes to us through Jesus and help us to please you with our lives of faith. Amen.